Thanks, Sue. Uh, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our live family office webinar. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. It's my pleasure to host a panel of distinguished guests uh, to discuss the SPAC landscape in the context of family offices. This is a topic that has uh, garnered a lot of attention, uh, as we all have heard, and hope today that you walk away with some unique insights and practical advice on this complex space. Uh, today's presentation will be recorded and later released on our podcast series. That series is called Family Office Intel, and you can find it wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Let's start with some intros. Rochelle Parham is our first guest here today. She's a managing director at West River Group, which is an integrated capital solutions provider, and she co-leads WRG's experience sector, leveraging her deep insights in the operating consumer and digital marketing uh, spaces to lead investments in the consumer experience economy. Rochelle is passionate about WRG's purpose to drive diversity of gender, ethnicity, and thought uh, with their co-led gender-balanced fund invested, investing model. Our next guest is Paul Barrett, uh, North American Regional Head at City Private Capital Group at City Private Bank. Private Capital Group is, a dedicate, is dedicated to providing institutional level service for high net worth families around the world, including family offices. Uh, those services include family office advisory, portfolio analytics, investment services, private deals, monetization of illiquid assets, liquidity management, and uh, various other financing alternatives. Our next panelist is Jim Woolery, founding partner of Woolery & Company. Jim co-founded his firm to serve as a strategic advisor to a select group of corporations, families, and institutions. Jim has uh, previously was a senior partner at Cravath. He was the co-head of M&A at JP Morgan. He was the co-founder uh, and principal of Hudson Executive Capital. He has been a leading strategic advisor uh, on over $3 trillion in transactions. Our last panelist is uh, my colleague, Brian Lee. He's a partner in our corporate practice based in New York City. Brian, is a, he has extensive experience in the public offerings of SPACs, having represented both sponsor groups in the formation and IPO of SPACs and private companies in the D-SPAC business combination transactions throughout his long career. Let's get underway. Jim, uh, first question to you is walk us through the history of SPACs. Many people think back to the last couple of years, but their history certainly has a lot uh, deeper roots and, and go far, further back than this. Where did they come from? Well, thank, and Eddie, thank you so much. Uh, good, good afternoon to everybody on the phone, and thank you for having me. And I really want to thank Denton's as a firm. They've been a great partner uh, to us. You know, the history of SPACs is, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, was kind of not particularly interesting or relevant to a whole lot of the market until about two years ago. But the background is that this is a blank check equity vehicle, it was largely used in the middle market by deal makers. Uh, most of them were small. Uh, the transactions, uh, some of them were successful, some of them weren't. You had, uh, you know, sort of a mixed bag, frankly. And it really wasn't uh, a big part of the overall market. But like what happened on the leverage side. So leverage was essentially supported uh, by central banks and so on. And um, and the United States. And so you saw a lot of innovation on the leverage side, leverage capital markets drove a lot of uh, transactions. This is all on the equity side. And the reason that it's happening in a wider macro sense is because the equity side is being supported by central banks around the world uh, in the form of stimulus and other measures. And so um, that has allowed um, this vehicle now to kind of enjoy a little bit of the benefits that happened on the leverage side. You also have the elements in a SPAC that are attractive uh, to investors from the following standpoint. It is a disintermediation device. Uh, so normally you would have seen between an LP like a, like a large LP, you'd see a private equity firm, a venture capital firm. Uh, here, it's direct to a promoter and it's liquid 
and there is no ability to force the investor into tax or a transaction based purely on this, the length of the fund or you know the overall, and they get a vote, uh, unlike in those funds. So there are elements of the structure that have been adopted um, because LPs are now becoming GPs and the folks on the phone are part of that trend. The, the, the LP world as it has grown up with sovereign wealth, family office, pension, uh, and now it's global reach and you have much of the talent uh, traveling from investment banking technology into the family office and investment world. And now that world kind of collectively can, can act uh, in a fairly significant way. And SPACs are really in some ways a reflection to me at a macro level of really the power of that phenomenon. Uh, it's not that family offices and SPACs go together everywhere. They don't. It's more that you have the equity side being supported. You have innovation. You have LPs and GPs coming together to act independently and in many ways away from the traditional banking sector. And we see that as a trend. And, uh, and so we think SPACs are here to stay as a, as a structure because it has liquidity, it has voting rights, it has things that are attractive. How it gets used, that will curve. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But that would be my kind of introduction to this. It's, it's clearly a device that was a middle market device that has now become much broader. But that breadth is really being driven by macroeconomic stimulus on the equity side and investor demand. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Paul, you know, let's fast forward to today. Uh, it seems that SPACs have become a popular term, even used uh, by non-financial experts. Is this rise real? And if it is, what, what's driven it? Yeah. Well, th thanks, Eddie. And thanks, thanks for having me. I think uh, a couple of things that to uh, piggyback what Jim said. If you go back in 1996, there were on 8,000 publicly traded companies in the U.S. But fast forward to today, I think like 4,300. So you've seen a massive reduction on the number of public companies. At the same time period, you've had a massive increase in the number of private companies. Right? New uh, funding for privates have gone way up. Number of startups have gone way up. So you've had this kind of setup, which was if give me a vehicle that can get these companies public in a very uh, uh, expedited way, and we'll get you supply of private companies. So I think the setup was good. I think you've seen higher quality sponsors. Uh, sponsor sponsors back. Historically, that was not the case. And now, if you're a private equity or VC firm, you almost have to have a SPAC vehicle in place uh, because if you are approaching a target and that target does not want to stay private and wants to go public, they need that vehicle in place. So you are getting this opportunity to back some very high quality sponsors, as Jim said, but in a very liquid format. So I think that's uh, certainly attracted new investors to the market. I think from the target perspective, right, what historically was a life cycle of doing a Series D, a Series E, a Series F, and an IPO round has suddenly been compressed into one event. And I think if you're a target and you want to get public quickly and you want to get a lot of money on your balance sheet, you can do all of that in a one-stop format. And so I think from the target perspective, it's also it's a nice vehicle to, uh, to do it. And lastly, I think with interest rates are where they are and people just, you know, overweight cash, they see this as a vehicle for a nice uh, risk-adjusted return, you know, with uh, limited downside, nice asymmetry to the upside. So I think you have a confluence of events, which I think kind of will keep this, uh, uh, the structure may change, it may tweak. But I think as a vehicle, I think this, this is here to stay. Thanks, Paul. And I'm seeing a couple of questions come in through uh, the, the, the Q&A in the chat box. Uh, reminder that please uh, keep them there. And then we'll at the end of uh, the presentation, we'll go through some of those uh, along the way. So thank you for those that are, are continuing to do that. Brian, let's, let's turn it over to yeah, you. Yeah, actually jumping into yeah, go ahead. Paul's point. Yeah, into Paul's point. I think one of the one of the big drivers of SPACs is um, the confluence of smartphones, discount brokeraging and the power of retail. Right. So, so with, with right now we have commission free, no cost trading accessible on your smartphone and with the way SPACs are marketed, right. Whereas uh, in some ways it's marketed to the masses, right. It's, we're not an operating company. You don't have to know uh, sophisticated, fancy pants words like EBITDA and CFC, right. Put your trust in the, in this management team that have hit several home runs before and put your money 
uh, with the deal that they bring back. And if you don't like the deal that they bring back, you can get your money back, right? That's an, a very attractive uh, sell to retail investors. And now that there's a rise in retail institution, uh, retail investors where, you know, they can just go in their smartphone and trade. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, right. The consensus was always, ah, you know, just buy something in a fund or a big company and just, uh, you know, set it and leave it. Right. And now it's, you know, everyone's on their smartphones, you know, tinkering around, you know, managing their portfolio because it's that easy. And because of this rise in retail, I think SPACs are here to stay. So, uh, Brian, uh, go back uh, a little bit and walk us through some of the nuts and bolts uh, mm-hmm. of, of a SPAC itself. What, what, what are the components, the basic process of investing in that, and then maybe even talk to us a little bit about the capital requirements uh, to start a SPAC? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, the, so the basic uh, parts of a SPAC, right, if you will, right, there's a, there's a founder team that's really the leader and, and organizes the SPAC, right? And the founder team is usually the profile of a good founder team is usually, um, you know, a management team, one or several individuals that have really hit home runs um, in, in, in the capital market space, right, that has a background and has a profile of being very successful. Right, they organize a SPAC and is and manages that SPAC through a sponsor entity, right, and and that sponsored entity forms and manages a publicly traded SPAC. Now, in terms of capital requirements to um, to start a SPAC, typically you you're looking at this formula, which is two percent of the SPAC's IPO plus two million dollars. So, so for example, if you did a two hundred million dollar SPAC, you would need Two percent of that, which is four million dollars, plus another two million dollars um, on the side, right? And so all that initial money is used for to pay for the initial upfront underwriting commissions that you're gonna uh, need to need to pay for for the investment bank to to lead the IPO and various other organizational matters to pay for professionals such as your public company uh, accountants, your your slash your auditor. Your legal, your lawyers, um, DNO insurance, which is actually one of the most expensive portions of of this of starting a SPAC. So you take this take this money. So where, so the question is, where do you come up with this startup capital, right? So you have usually you have two options, right? Either the founder team has um, are very wealthy, uh, well funded individuals or groups, private equity groups, and they will uh, put up the entire what's called at risk capital to start. Right. Or alternatively, and this is that's the case for in, in actually most structures is right. The private um, sponsor entity that manages this back, right, sells um, LLC or limited partnership interests to private investors that invest into the SPAC. Um, sorry, that invest into a sponsor that manages this back. Right. And so, so there, right, in this example where you have two. Two and two percent and two of a two hundred million dollars back. You're basically um, turning, t- t- getting, investing six million dollars through the sponsor entity, and potentially that can be worth many, many times more than that after a successful uh, SPAC, D-SPAC combination. Because what you're getting for your six million dollars in this hypothetical is twenty percent, twenty percent of it, of the equity of the publicly traded SPAC. And a certain number of warrants, so that's that can potentially in a in a very, um, as people say, in a in a good business combination, you're turning millions of dollars into billions of dollars, which is for for example in the, in a very successful DraftKings um, transaction, that's what happened. Millions turned into billions. So, uh, uh, Brian, I appreciate the the. the- Sort of the financial piece of that, Rochelle. You know, let's turn it to the founder team. I think we've been talking about how to establish the team of that. What do you look like in terms, and what do you look for in the profile of an ideal SPAC founder team, and and certainly the the, the SPAC boards themselves? Sure. So, so number one, thank you for having me, and I really just want to compliment with Brian just said, because a lot of what I'm going to share uh, aligns to that. And and some of the credit I'll give to NASDAQ, because some of um, what I'm going to share with you came from that uh, group. But first of all, you'd look for what are the qualifications of the SPAC sponsors? 
you know, who are the sponsors of the SPAC? Why do you trust them with your money? Do they include best-in-class marquee investors who've completed successful SPAC deals in the past or traditional IPOs before? And are there any former executives among them who um, have any niches in, in this industry or any expertise that um, that you can align to? This, the second piece would be, you know, what is the stated investment target? And that complements what Brian just said. The third is, are the sponsors and shareholders interest aligned? Uh, you want to make sure that, th- that that's actually happening. It's a critical step. Uh, the fourth is, do the sponsors and founding investors actually have skin in the game, to Brian's point? And then the last I'd say is, who's actually underwriting the deal? And just making sure that you examine any conflicts of interest in the relationship between the sponsors and the investment bank that's actually underwriting it. Um, your next question was around SPAC boards. And the board's really important because uh, there's a few key elements that you want to make sure of. And it actually just adds a little more weight uh, to um, to the, the power of that SPAC. The first I'd say is, are these board members credible? Are they known in the market? Often you get kind of marquee names, former CEOs or CMOs or folks who have experience in the market. Uh, do they actually see deal flow? So part of the, the, the nature of this board is to actually bring deal flow to that sponsor team. Uh, I just mentioned if they're from the C-suite, um, sometimes board experience is helpful just because they know how to ask a different level of questions. Uh, But also remember, this is often a a quick turn thing. And so you wanna make sure that you have people in the room who actually work well together. So um, the last thing I'll add is you wanna make sure that there's a really good cultural fit. Thanks for sharing. And and Andy, if I may, on two things, just from a, uh, as Brian mentioned, your potential return on your sponsor investment is, um, you know, 10X and then some. don't miss that opportunity to try to do some estate planning and get that out of your estate and get it into a trust because you can get, you know, 10, 20 times return on your investment. If you can get that out of your uh, estate early on, uh, it's an amazing wealth transfer opportunity. And the second thing I mentioned, you know, the 6 million that Brian also mentioned, historically, you've also had sponsors commit what's called a forward purchase agreement, where they will commit additional equity at the time of the business combination. That seemed to have kind of gone away over the last year or so. It'll be interesting to see whether that comes back to give additional deal certainty at the time of the business combination. It'll be interesting to watch that. Yeah. And, and one thing I wanted to add, Eddie, to what I thought Rochelle's points were just outstanding and everybody's, uh, Brian. Um, the, you know, on the governance side, you know, SPACs are an area of innovation and kind of an intersection between the old and the new economy including in the boards. And one of the things to look for is that there be board members that rep- represent uh, the, the ESG values that investors wanna see today, uh, as well as an alignment to both the execution of the transactions that may come and then the aftermarket of that, because we're now in a, a real issue of certainty in SPAClandia in terms of the pipes and the areas that support the transaction all the way through. And you kind of have to start thinking about it all the way through from beginning to end to the merger. And uh, Rochelle's point about having folks that can help you at every step of the way, um, that then makes it, it's a circle that makes it credible for investors because they see that and they understand what the current issues are out in the, out in the waterfront here in SPACs, because there are issues, this market's maturing and sorting itself out. And not every one of these deals is DraftKings. I just want to say that, okay? Just a health warning to everybody. There, we're, There's going to be a sorting out in SPACs and they're going to be like in everything where there's a larger market, there's going to be, you know, good, okay, and not so good. And so I just, I just wanted to give that health warning for everybody. Thanks. So given that health warning and all the other issues that you mentioned and, and other elements that we've discussed, why would somebody consider starting a SPAC? And why would family offices look at creating their own SPAC? And should they? Well, what they should be looking at, everyone should be looking at, 
is not SPAC. SPAC is a metaphor for a wider set of events on the equity and in the capital markets itself. And it, it's not just SPAC, it's reaction to SPAC because what this, what's happening in the SPAC world is, is affecting the venture world. So now when I go to founders and I talk to, you know, a lot, of, we represent a lot of founders on the founder side. We say to them, look, you need to have multiple options because the banks are offering a, a, a fairly straightforward process, but that process has to be buttressed with your own investors and your own optionality so that you always have options vis-a-vis -vis whatever bank is offering you, whatever they're offering you at every stage of the game. And you need to forward set investors that are there for the, you know, as, as Brian said, you have your organizational capital, but you can also be bringing in some folks that could be in your pipe. So now you're, you're setting that up or you're marketing to that thoughtfully ahead of time. Now the banks are not, they're really there as a transactional matter at each stage. And so having advisors that are looking across that continuum is what's important because there for family offices, you get a blended return. You get a little risk capital, you get a little pie, you know, you're, you can look at it from an investor from various strips and you can put together your own portfolio of what that would be as an investor or as a seller into it because it's going to be a high bid for assets out there. So to me, it's really not just SPAC. I have to look at SPAC. I have to look at the reaction to SPAC and just the whole investment universe because it is, it is being realigned after the pandemic uh, in a big way. And you're going to see a tremendous amount of different volume in the private market and the family offices have an ability to leverage their position. I'd like to, you know, hear what the other panelists have to say about that in terms of family offices, you know, Brian's view on what they should be doing, but you can play this from various angles, but it's not, you look at SPAC to understand what is SPAC, what is happening. It's definitely going to be a vehicle used to get companies public quickly and then what is my reaction to that as an investor and how does it align and what's happening in the venture community and the private equity community? Because this is a ubiquitous phenomenon right now in the equity market. So I, I turn it back to the other panelists. So Jim, taking your points there to Paul, Paul certainly cities in a, a, a very large participant in, in SPACs and, and, and leads in many uh, places of this. And you work with a lot of family offices at city why, why the interest in this in SPACs for family offices? Is, is there, can you talk to us about the demand supply dynamics? Uh, absolutely. We've, we've kind of seen three different avenues, if you like. You know, we've had a number of our family offices and clients actually sponsor SPACs for all the reasons we've outlined. And again, it comes back to, do you have a good team around you? Do you have the credibility? Do you have the resources to do this properly and not, and not just a hobby? And, you know, that's been uh, the lens that we've taken and we've had a core group of family officers sponsor. I think on the investor side, you know, if we were managing a portfolio today for, for you, we'd probably have one or 2% of your assets in cash. In reality, we look at what our clients are owning, their cash levels are significantly higher. So they've looked at the SPAC market, especially if you can get in around a $10 IPO price. They've looked at it as a way of kind of getting out of cash, getting some equity upside, but having a nice asymmetrical payout profile because you have that $10 redemption right. And so we have seen a lot of families put money to work around that $10 price with the view that let me back a good quality sponsor. And you know, up until recently, you know, some of these backs have been trading very, very well. Now, obviously the market's changed quite dramatically and we'll see how it plays out. But we have seen that. And we've also seen, and, and, the, and how does that work? We have seen family offices literally participate in testing the water meetings with management pre-IPO. So they get to hear the story. Um, but then they're also coming in for the pipes and, you know, historically the pipes had been more uh, of the um, kind of the participants in the pipe had been more the institutional names, uh, whereas more recently you see more and more family offices be part of that pipe flow to try and get to that final number. So that's on the investor side. And then on the target side, and obviously wealthy clients own private companies. And so they have used this, uh, this back phenomena to try accelerate uh, and get liquidity for some of their privately held companies. And that could be both if you own the company outright or you're simply a minority investor in a private company, you can certainly try uh, have the, the management of the company uh, explore that, that DSPAC 
path. So you've seen three different kind of angles that our private banking clients have been using. It's all been very interesting. You know, obviously, I think the pipeline for new deals is you know, still robust, but the, the calendar is going to slow. Um, but overall, it's been very interesting, and it's been amazing how many family offices have got involved in either one, two, or three of those avenues. So uh, when you have those different avenues that Paul has uh, discussed, Rochelle, you know, what are some of the guiding principles that you've talked to uh, you know, in your own SPAC experience and with families and other institutions that you've worked with in this space when you're deciding to invest in a SPAC? Yeah, so, so thank you. So, so one of the things that Jim said is that things move very quickly. And, uh, and so we just keep in mind that things move very quickly. And because of that, uh, there's a few things that I, I like to think about and, and I think of as guiding principles. Number one, know the sponsors and truly understand their expertise. Number two, get to know the company and understand where they're headed and does that align. Also getting to know the CEOs. Uh, is um, is also very very helpful, and then the last piece, which you know, I know uh, this group understands better than anyone, but be prepared to ask the tough questions, uh, because the, the window is so short, and you're going to need answers so that you can be the best informed to make that decision on investing. Uh, thanks, Rochelle. Jim, let's let's wind out a little bit uh, and look at SPACs outside of North America. I think we've been talking a lot about SPACs here uh, in the U.S. and Canada. What are you seeing outside the U.S. in terms of activity in Europe and Asia? Uh, is it is that coming online, or has it been following in parallel? Oh no, I think it's it's coming online and sort of tracking uh, coming in behind. And and here's why: um, investors, I think, are uh, there are certain SPAC themes, let's say, or industries that are that are somewhat played out, uh, and they're uh, you know because again this is a wide group of of industries. We see a lot in space, healthcare, technology, obviously, and electric vehicles and innovation in particular. But the other form of innovation and arbitrage that's available is between markets. And so there are assets, many assets that are held in the technology space in Asia uh, or in Western Europe that were they listed here um, would receive a much more powerful uh, multiple would be the theory. And um, investors know that widely are aware of it. Um, There are uh, assets coming from Asia, including China, um, into the United States uh, now, uh, but there's going to be a sorting out of what what's most eligible. The banks have to underwrite, so you have that phenomenon, and that's, again, where diligence is key. We're involved in some of that. Western Europe, uh, again, where there are these assets, where one transaction we're involved in is in space, uh, it's, but it's infrastructure, and it's going to be taking that asset into uh uh, into the United States market. So I think you're going to see a fair bit of that uh, because we have an oversupply, frankly, of SPAC capital, and that's going to continue to be printed. And what you need are assets. And those assets have to have some differentiated competitive advantage. And those assets in those regions do, and, and the only issue is regulatory and knowing your you know, knowing that you're, as you go up the chain, you're not uh, in any kind of problems from a Cepheus or other standpoint, but assuming you get that clearance, you're going to see those assets come online. So my next uh, question is really around risk. And I'd like to ask this to to Rochelle and and Paul, but it'll be a two-part question on the specific risks associated with, with SPAC investment. Rochelle, are there things that you're seeing out there that are specifically important to family office to take into consideration when they look at SPAC investment on top of all the things that you talked about before alignment around all these different issues, but maybe some important things that you've seen as well? Yeah, thank you. So so I'll probably defer to Paul on the heavy lifting on this just because he's in this every day. Uh, but the, the things that, um, that really come to mind for me and um, – is, is just not understanding what it is and why you would do it 
and the processes that are, are um, going to need to be followed in the in along the way. And so, you know, when I think about all the the detail that Brian went into in the beginning of this conversation, he walked us through process. And I think just having an understanding of the process, uh, if you don't have that, I think that's a risk. Uh, I think another risk is just um, not following some of those guiding principles that I mentioned a, a moment ago. But the last area is, um, is one that you all will understand, which is, do you trust them with your money? And obviously there's so many you know, great venture firms and PE firms and others who have done so many SPAC deals. Um, but there are a lot of people that are getting in this uh, in this game and uh, and not all of them have the experience and background and frankly track record. And so uh, ultimately that's how I would think about this. Like, do you trust them with your money? Thanks Rochelle. And then Paul, the second part of this really, if you could maybe talk about the risk piece, but also maybe highlighting the different risk profiles of owning a SPAC uh, pre and, and post business combination. I think that would be very helpful. Sure, absolutely. Rochelle's point is a good one because don't forget the sponsor can still generate a very nice return on their sponsor risk capital, even if the deal is not that successful, right? You know, you can get 10x return for, for a kind of okay deal. You can still get five or six X return if the deal is trained down 30 or 40%. Right. And so it goes back to really kind of trusting that sponsor and making sure not only just they worrying about their economics, but their reputation and everything else like that is a big factor. I think when you're looking at a SPAC, you have to break it down to almost three, three parts of the investment cycle, right? It's from the time of the IPO to when the deal gets announced, right? Up until that point, you continue to have that $10 floor. And so sometimes we'll trade slightly below the trust value of $10 a share. Generally, it won't trade too much below because Again, you, the, the money is held in trust in treasuries and you have this redemption rights. So it can't deviate too much. In times of extreme stress, it could take, trade down maybe five or 6%, but generally the hedge funds will come in and buy it and hold it up and write it back up to par. So there's a nice profit. Once you announce the deal to the actual time of the business combination, there you're going to see probably more volatility around the name. And so you still have that $10 floor, which is nice, but if you're coming in and buying at 11 or 12 or $13 price, suddenly you've got 10, 20, 30% downside down to that $10 floor. So your risk begins to pick up, especially if you're, if you're buying at about $10. Then the most risky part of the transaction is really in that third stage is that once the consummation happens, literally the ticket changes, and now that $10 floor has gone away. And now you own what up until now has been for the most part of growthier tech names that are showing extreme volatility. And at that point, you need to own it like any other stock and do the same level of due diligence. But we've seen even greater volatility in some of these companies that have gone public through a SPAC because they've come out of fairly lofty valuations and the hedge fund community has become quite aggressive and shorting some of those names because they think the valuations are, are frothy. So you really have to look at it in almost like three different stages. Stages one and two, the risk is very controlled and known. Risk stage three, that's when you're going to have a much wider range of outcomes. Yeah. And the biggest issue, I totally agree with that. The biggest issue right now is the front page issue is the dilution that Rochelle talked about. So the sponsors getting paid when the investors aren't. And that happened after the financial crisis in hedge fund, when hedge funds boomed and, and slowly had performance metrics come in. Oh, wait a second. You, you're going to have to perform a little bit before you get the return that Paul was. And so we're going to see that creep in because there's going to be a trade between certainty underneath the transaction because investors are going to provide greater certainty. They're going to come in much bigger underneath. But as they grow in power, they're going to take back terms from the sponsor. And that dilution issue should get corrected because it's too big. And so part of the volatility is being driven by that dilution issue because that dilution happens day one of the closing. Boom, there's 20% against the asset in equity that wasn't there before, right, Paul? So now, you know, that's got to be supported by performance or something. And uh, that'll be a negotiation. Yeah, yeah. And, and you often see that, you know, 20% will be the number that you kind of hear about. By the time a deal gets done, you may be down to 10 or 15%. Uh, by the time it gets negotiated away, 
Now the common SPAC structure is for 20% sponsor promotes. There have been deals where there's only like a 10% promote. There have been deals where there's no promotes. It's purely buying out of the money options. So it'll be interesting to see the evolution of the structure to see if we migrate to a number that's maybe closer to 10%, which is you know in, in more investor friendly for sure. Yeah. Hey, I'll jump in and I'll I'll Please. I'll ch- chime in with what I think is not a risk, right? And 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 everyone uh, might have been aware, and you know, if you're reading the Wall Street Journal and, and other news about this warrant liability mm-hmm. accounting. Right, that right. has put put uh, that has been front page news for for SPACs. You know, in my view, that's that's not a risk. I think that people in the market, people who understand SPACs, know what the warrant it, what what the warrant is. Right. So so to give a little bit of a brief brief background on, on this issue, right? The the SEC, after some thought, right, they they dreamt of a, certain scenarios where the warrant would not necessarily be treated as equity, right? There are situations when, it, when the SPAC does, uh, does certain corporate actions where, where payouts to the warrant differ to payouts to the common stock. And from a purely technical uh, accounting point of view, right, even if that only happens in 2% of the time, right, and in ma- right, uh, you can't book the warrant as equity and you have to book it as a liability, right? But the fact of the matter is for, for most SPACs, people understand what will happen to the warrant and that the warrant are exercisable after a business combination at a certain price, right? And they, they could be redeemed. So 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 the, the treatment of whether this is an equity instrument or a warrant instrument doesn't change the rights of the warrant holder, doesn't affect the common stockholder. All it does is change certain numbers on a financial statement of the SPAC of the SPAC pre and post business combination that the market has already priced in and already understands what that instrument is. Great point. Totally agree. So Brian, uh, continuing on that, what what about the legal risks that are, that are part of this and the issues that you've seen come up uh, on on both ends of uh, the spectrum uh, for these SPACs? Yeah. It's building in some of the, some of the major look, there are a lot of lot of legal issues and 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 risk, and certainly anyone who's thinking about um, starring their own spec or investing in a spec should should seek counsel. But uh, one, I'm going to raise up particularly two two risks, because I don't want to take up too much time. Two risks, two legal issues. One is right. Um, the invest the IPO investment into a SPAC is a, is very well regulated. There's a lot of rules and regulations for that because that's a public offering. What I've seen is and is shrouded in mystery, and there's a lot of not a lot of regulation is the private placement into a sponsor entity. And what I've seen is in some ways in that in that um, fundraise right to fundraise the risk capital is sort of the wild wild west. West right there's there's no disclosure. There's no typical standard economic terms. So what happens when um, when a SPAC management team, a SPAC founder, goes to raise this risk uh, risk capital with you know wealthy institution, uh, wealthy individuals and institutions, and sometimes they may target wealthy uh, individuals or, or past family offices that are not that so sophisticated in SPACs and bring about terms and conditions that are not particularly advantageous. And so in that instance, if you're thinking about investing into a sponsor entity, really uh, you, you would be uh, well served to, to bring counsel and experienced advisors to help you navigate through that process of investing into a sponsor entity. And the second point I want to raise legal issue is, right, there's been, because there's been so many SPACs and, and some are well done, and some are not particularly well done. There's been a rise in litigation, especially right after the proposed business combination. And there's a risk of liability. Now, as a normal investor, there's a there's a corporate veil that protects you from an investor standpoint. But if you're you know in a um, uh, high profile of a family office and you're approached to be on the management team or be be on the board of directors, right? Which is which often. Uh, which is sometimes the case if you're a, a large investor interest back, right? You want to make sure that um, there are sufficient indemnification and DNO insurance, you know, to cover you because 
you know, you have deep pockets that you, you want to protect and, and you want to make sure that in the event of, of, of uh, liability, that there's sufficient indemnification and DNL insurance to, to, to protect your assets. Thanks, Brian. Paul, what about the, the regulatory perspective? Uh, do you see any of that uh, slowing things down in this space or is that just, um, should we be expecting more this year? Uh, how, how do you see that coming about? I think it's important to look at those, the regulatory accounting of warrants that absolutely slowed things down, but that will clear and the market's priced it in. And I think we'll get, get through that. I think if you look at the, what is unique about a SPAC and what's very appealing for a company to use the DSPAC path to an IPO is the ability to make forward-looking projections. Whereas in an IPO and a direct listing, you are more constrained as what you can do in terms of talking about the future of the business. You know, in a, in a DSPAC, you can talk about your 2024, 2025, 2026 revenue projections. And I think that potentially will come under more scrutiny um, I think the market's already imposing that discipline and no longer accepting such aggressive and long-dated projections, but it'll be interesting to see whether there is um, more restrictions placed around that. And I also think that could come in where you need to show a, a set of outcomes. You can't just show me the, the, you can't just sell me the dream. It needs to be, okay, sell me the dream, but also tell me what's the base case, what's the worst case. So as an investor can get a better feel for what could be the cone of outcomes based on your forward-looking projections. So I think that to me will probably be one of the more interesting uh, ones. And then it goes back to disclosure. You know, Jim mentioned it, the dilution that the uh, SPAC shareholders take for those that stay in the deal can be quite onerous. And so I just think there's a general lack of disclosure. Um, same thing Brian mentioned, if I've got 90% of my sponsor's capital from outside LPs, I basically have no more skin in the game. And so I think there's going to be a massive increase in the disclosure of who owns the risk capital, uh, more guidelines around your forward-looking projections, and then just additional disclosure around kind of the dilution impact on existing IPO shareholders that stay along for the deal. That's where I think it plays out. Yeah, and I think on that, that you really want to be looking at um, investors, as we said, asserting themselves, but also there's in this sorting out what we haven't ever been in before in history is, you know, there are, uh, uh, you know, thousands of boats gassed up with capital to go out and acquire assets within two years. Okay, all this is timestamp capital, every bit of it. So as we move out into the curve of the SPACs that have been printed in the timeline of that, and then the continuing supply and then the secondary market of actual data of actual SPAC performance that crosses industry. That's not just a random deal here or there, but you can see it in a constellation what happened in healthcare technology SPACs. And then the, and it, within that, there'll be, there'll be again, a sorting out really good spot, really good sponsors and ones that, you know, are more conflicted, you know, and, and less, uh, you know, supportive, you know, less long-term supported by investors, you know, folks that form SPACs and then blow them out and trade out of them fast and leave investors holding the bag are not going to be, you know, coming for SPAC five in my view, you know, and there's going to be that dynamic. And I think Rochelle really hit that hard. And I think it was an excellent point about really looking at that background and that being the best things that family offices can do is to really look deeply and across at who they're dealing with. So Jim, on those comments, before we go into Q&A, maybe you could talk to us about and give us an example of, of a SPAC or a type of SPAC, uh, you know, probably not into the actual specifics of a single one, but then that, mm. that would look as an element that would be interesting to a family office uh, to invest in. A SPAC that would be interesting and good, like on the good side. Yeah. On the good side. We've talked about yeah, yeah. the, the, the yeah, downside. Yeah. Let's, let's, look I at think the it's really around um, not just, so not just the sponsor quality. That's great. You got to have that. The second element is what is the momentum in the space? For example, in space, in infrastructure, you are 
you are around a, a macro secular wave that you're also in it with a SPAC. So you have, you have a lot of tailwind in some of these areas where you have, again, real management teams doing real stuff. So there's some of this stuff that's like, you know, we're making 10 bucks today, but we're going to make, you know, 10 billion tomorrow. That's whatever. Then there's stuff, people that have real contracts. They, they're launching satellites. They're doing real things, but they're in the new economy. Space, healthcare technology, uh, fintech, tech, and secular shift. We have the best deal I've ever seen is one right now I'm looking at is, uh, is uh, the lottery on your phone. It's a company called Jackpocket. It's not going to go SPAC. Um, and it's uh, one of the top apps growing. It's a secular shift. It's going to happen. It's got a lot of other things behind it beyond just the SPAC phenomenon. And I think investors and family offices in particular, if they play this strategically, they can get involved and be aware of these earlier and, and, and pick out the better trout, so to speak, that are running through the river. Great. Well, uh, thanks to our panel. I'm going to open it up to the questions that have come in through the Q&A uh, function here. If you have uh, additional questions after hearing a, 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 what our, our commentary today, do, do throw them in the Q&A and we'll get to as many as we can uh, through this. I think the first question here really comes around privacy uh, and this notion of a tension between the inconsistency uh, between how family offices desire to have privacy and confidentiality and their participation or sponsorship of a SPAC. Is that something that's realistic that they can uh, or feasible uh, for a family office to attract this kind of or provide this kind of capital and still be uh, maintain that confidentiality? Maybe Paul, uh, start with you. Yeah, that, that, that's a tough one, right? I mean, other than being a silent contributor to sponsor risk capital, it's very difficult to maintain anonymity during a SPAC process. And look, this is one of the downsides to doing a SPAC, right? You've got your reputation on the line and your reputation, A, you maybe can't get a deal done or B, you get a deal done and it's unsuccessful. So yeah, it's not a straightforward decision as to whether you want to do it. But no, in terms of trying to kind of keeping under the radar, once you go down this path, it's very difficult. And even at the pipe stage, right? I mean, a lot of the times the pipe investors will be disclosed. And so it's also hard to um, maintain anonymity there. Um, no, in, in, a, in a public vehicle, you're giving up majority of those, of those yeah. rights. There is way, that's right. And I would agree with that. I would say there's one way, right? And the way is that an SPV with multiple family offices behind founders and the founders are in front. And now I'm an SPV and I'm funding, I, I'm a venture capital firm. Yes, I'm at the SPV co, but essentially what I am is like a VC backstop to founders. And in that case, if you structure it as an SPV, the SPV itself would be disclosed, but the, uh, you know, but so you could control that a little bit and ultimately it's going to be coming out because people are a market off of it. Like they always do the Walton families in this, the, this, I mean, come on, that's how it, this works. Yeah. So I think the notion that, um, but again, it depends on where you're playing. If you're playing in a passive way, you could be more quiet. If you're playing in a more active way, wouldn't you agree, Paul, that you'd be more in front. It's sort of that continuum. Yeah. Great. Uh, the next question is uh, more of macroeconomic. Uh, so if inflation pressures build and the, the Fed has to raise rates, what do you think will happen to SPACs as a general vehicle in general? Uh, Jim or Jim Paul, uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I'll take a crack at this one. I mean, 80, 90, I think 90% of these SPACs in the last year have typically targeted high growth companies. High growth companies are pretty much long duration assets, right? You're kind of betting on earnings coming in five or 10 years and you're betting on revenue three to five years out. So if you're gonna simply present value those at a higher rate, like every stock did in the NASDAQ or most stocks in the NASDAQ in the last two months since rates could went higher, these are gonna face pressure. So I think the impact of rates will determine how well a lot of the tech focused DSPACs trade 
it may also force more despacks to happen in more cyclical companies. Uh, think banks, materials, even energy, you know, that's been left for dead. So I think it will just force a universe of companies to go public that historically had been shunned up until two months ago to become a much bigger part of the DSPAC equation. So it, I think it, will, it will shift back and forth depending on the rate environment and the outlook for longer duration growth stocks. That's, I think, yeah. that, that's where the impact will be most, uh, most uh, observable. Right. And when you raise rates, you're transferring value from the equity to the bond market, right? And you're transferring, right? So, so if you just ran a model on any investment on the equity side and you raise rates 100 basis points, it's going to do things um, significantly there. So you're going to see some value go to the bond market if rates go up. But again, we may be in this situation, Paul, and I, I really think it's going to be one of the most interesting times ever um, where you could see because of the amount of stimulus, you know, sort of a levitation of both the bond and the equity market at the same time. Uh, because again, cash versus getting interest in a SPAC, you know, cash is not going to be very helpful. Assets are going to be extremely important. Assets. And uh, I think SPACs will be continue to be part of a barbelling strategy that we see more and more by large investors where they are, uh, they're going to be invested in SPACs, but they're also going to be invested in gold and uh, cryptocurrency and other hard assets um, that reflect the new economy. So, uh, Brian, uh, one of the questions here is around family-owned businesses. And, and why would a family-owned business use the SPAC vehicle as a way to get capital? What, what would be attractive about that? Well, Right. And the same, so for the same reasons that it would be attractive to a, a non-family owned business, which is right. A SPAC gives you access to the equity capital markets in a faster manner than a traditional IPO. So in a, in a DSPAC transaction, typically you're looking at a six month process from the time you negotiate to the LOI to the time you close and then you, you close on the combination and you're now, um, a public vehicle versus a traditional IPO process, which is more or less 12 months. So typically you, you're cutting down the time to access the capital markets in half. And the other, uh, there are several, but the second big advantage of the SPAC vehicle is that you get more valuation certainty. Um, it's not that you're not subject to market swings, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be, um, you know, you're going to be at the mercy of the of of um, stock price movement, right? But in a SPAC, what's happening is you negotiate your enterprise value with the SPAC upfront, and then you verify, you test that um, uh, valuation at in the pipe market, right? So, so early, relatively early in the process, you're you're get you're negotiating and getting to a valuation and testing that valuation, so it's proven as opposed to an IPO where you do all the work up front and at the last minute you're going, uh, relatively the last minute, right? You're going to test the waters and go roadshow presentations through your investment bank to see whether or not you, you're getting the valuation that you hope for. So those are two of the biggest advantages of SPACs. So the, one of these questions is around the amount of SPACs that are out there that are still looking for a target. Is this a, uh, What's the demand supply dynamics on this, Paul? We talked about this from the family offices looking to invest. What about from the SPACs themselves? What are your thoughts there? Look, I think historically, what, I think 92 or 93% of SPACs have consummated and found a target. You know, I'm, I'm glad you'll take the under, right? As Jim mentioned, like the, the, the shot clock has started on all of these ones. So I think it's highly unlikely that uh, you're going to see 92% of the 430 SPACs outstanding find targets. The flip side is it's never been a better time to be a seller or a target uh, into a SPAC. So, and, and this goes back to the debate, you know, are SPACs in a bubble? Well, yes, there's a lot of cash and trust looking for targets. So is cash a bubble? No, it's the discipline that comes on the DSPAC is where the bubble most likely plays out. And if you look, there's probably five or $600 billion of dry powder in terms of late stage private equity slash VC 
LP commitments, first roughly $140 billion in, in SPAC money. So is there a bubble there? Well, I guess it's all relative, but it's going to play out in the back end. But as a seller or a, a recipient of that SPAC uh, money, if you're a target company, it's never been a better time to engage in a, a SPAC auction process if, in fact, you are ready to be a public uh, company. Yeah. And so part of what drives that's kind of what we're playing out. And part of what drives this question, I'm sorry for interrupting, is that we get this question a lot um, because there are folks on the phone that are thinking perhaps, hey, I can go find a SPAC that's near the end, Paul, that's deadline, and I can go take their promote because – I, cause I can as a seller, right? I'm, I'm a target. I want to go public. I'm on the phone. I'm a founder. I'm a family office. I own some asset. And in my dream scenario, sometimes is in, rather than forming my own SPAC is to go find a SPAC that's near the end of its life form and then recut the promote and sort of take that and use that. All right. And that is a somewhat people always kind of bring that up. As much as people want that, it's really a bad strategy because you're looking for weakness. You're often chasing something that because the economics of forming the SPAC have gotten less, right? So that the the folks that paid, it's a little bit like your Best Buy TV. You, you know, you paid back in September, you paid $10 million to do what Brian was talking about or 12. Now it's six. It used to be more because people, advisors are rolling fees and all this. So uh, I just I just would caution people around that strategy. That's all. Yeah. And to add to uh, Jim's point, right, when you're looking for SPACs at the end of their life cycle, meaning they don't have that much time to do the right. business right. combination, exactly right. they're running up against the clock, corners get cut, and you're, yes. inher- you're the target company. You're going to inherit right, all that right. liability. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Totally agree. And then if I could just add one other point, in, in some SPACs, that SPAC board ends up, at least some member of those, of those SPAC boards ends up on the board of the company. And when you think about that that alignment, you want to make sure that you're actually aligning to a sponsor that has similar goals to yours and that has set up a team that can actually help you to build and scale and grow. And uh, and so you don't want to be saddled with you know just the, the last in the bunch that didn't necessarily align to uh, ultimately where you needed to take the company. Totally agree. Yeah. And I, I know we're bumping up against the hour here, but I want to ask one more question uh, of our panelists. And I think this would be a good concluding thought and, and I defer to who would like to answer this one, but it's really around governance. And it goes back to the, the uh, piece of how would you talk and what would you say to family offices that have concerns about the inconsistencies of family office interests uh, as a protection against conflicts of interest uh, when they're when they're backing the the risk capital that's part of this or participating in a pipe or or, or, or being a shareholder I mean what what is governance what does good governance look like uh, for a SPAC well uh, maybe you, I, go ahead oh yeah uh, well right I'm just going to tee it to you Brian and so you should uh, yeah, answer no, that. no problem <laughs> I, I wanted to defer in case anyone else no, wants please, to go ahead. so go, going in I, I think, look, I think before you in, invest, right, you, you have to, one, you have to do your research, obviously, right? You have to see what the management team is all about, right? What, whether, whether the areas of interest that they're, they're likely to invest in are goals that align with, with yours, right? And second of all, right, as a, right, if you're in a family office and you're planning a major investment in, in a SPAC, right, uh, when you're, both in terms of when you're investing into the sponsor entity and in the pipe transaction, right? There's opportunities for you to leverage your investment, your significant investment to have a role in the corporate governance, right? To be on the board of directors, right? Uh, or to be an officer of the SPAC. And, and there you can, you can dictate uh, certain ESG concerns, just like R- Rochelle was talking about, right? ESG concerns that and experiences that you want specifically addressed, right? That is your chance to to negotiate that as part of your investment, right? Um, because e- every management team is going to have different philosophies on on these type of issues, and so there's no cookie cutter. Um, way to say, oh, you know, this is how you address this conflict or this is how you address the other conflict. It's really a dialogue with the uh, sponsor and management team that you need to have upfront 
early, not later. Totally agree. And I would just add on that because I think it's critical and it's, it's, it's really important. Family offices can help improve our economy and our world by being supportive um, of, of good governance. And this is a place they can do it directly. This is a place where their influence matters. And frankly, having boards that are more reflective of our diverse uh, population, our diversity of business experience, and all of the things that are really necessary in the new economy to be successful, I think family offices are going to be really important in having that influence. And I think it's going to be terrific uh, as an expression of one of the things that would be great in the, in the economy. Um, so I'm, I'm, I just encourage everybody on that point. Well, uh, thank you, Jim, and, and thank you, Rochelle, Paul, and, and Brian, uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate your comments and all the expertise and insights uh, for our guests. And to our guests, thank you for listening in today. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests and our panelists, if you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. Again, you'll find a recording of this webinar on our podcast series called Family Office Intel. And to sign up for our newsletter and learn more about our solutions and our research in the family office space, check out our website. That is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.